0: Not sure if you could pick up what happened during the, the word with children. There was this moment, and I'll tell the parent later which child this was. <laughs> where one of the children interrupted Pastor Jasmine's uh, story about this runner and said, "Do you know where the church mouse is?" <laughs> I don't know where this child like came up with this need uh, and there's, cause there's a little church mouse here at the Kirk, like a little mouse. Do you know where it is? A lot of people might know where it is. I'm happy to tell you. If you don't know where it is, ask someone uh, that maybe just nodded their head and they can show you where the church mouse is sometime. It's fun to, to know all these little things, but where different things are here. It, maybe you'll learn about another one today. Maybe. Today, we're, uh, we're talking about our new vision statement for the third time in a row. We envision a world where every heart experiences God's transforming love. It's on the back of your bulletin. And in the first week, we studied the first part of John chapter 21, and we talked about how Jesus had this vision that was bigger than the people on the boat. They caught 153 large fish, too many fish for all of them. And so that was the first idea. We envision not just a church, we envision, like Jesus, a world. We have a vision for a different kind of world. The second part, where every heart experiences, and we took that next section in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, where the disciples come to shore and they have an experience, an encounter with Jesus. They don't just listen to Jesus. They don't just obey Jesus and put their nets on the other side of the boat. They get out of the boat and they come to shore to share air with the living God. Today, we learn about this last section in our vision statement. We learn about God's transforming love. And we see Jesus offering Peter a shape for the community that he hopes for. The shape of a flock. Share the fish. Come to shore. Be a flock. Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing, we might believe, and believing, obey. Amen. I wish I could tell you more about Harlan W. Fogel, but I never met him. I never met him But his words hang over my head. I never met him, though. That is how it seems with Jesus and Peter today. It's like they never met one another. When Jesus opens up this conversation with Peter over breakfast, he doesn't call him Peter. Did you notice that? He calls him Simon, son of John. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, this is what Jesus calls Peter when they first meet one another. He calls him Simon, son of John, but then almost immediately, he gives him this name, Peter. Now, in the Greek, Petros means rock. And so this nickname that Jesus gives to Peter Is meant to shape his vocation. He will be the rock on which Jesus will build his church. Now that day was a banner day for Peter. To have that kind of confidence placed on him, to be the rock on which Jesus will build his church. But a lot has transpired since that fateful day in Bethany. I'm sure that since that time, Jesus has called Peter a great many things, things that a teacher might call a student and a friend might call a friend. Even one time, Jesus called Peter Satan. That was the day that Jesus told Peter about his fate and how Peter tried to talk him out of it, and Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. In a way, what he calls him today is worse. It is one thing for a teacher to rebuke you and to scold you and to speak disapprovingly to you. It's quite another thing for someone that you deeply love and admire to act like they never met you at all. By calling him this, by calling him Simon, son of John, while sitting around this charcoal fire, the same kind of fire that Peter sat around as he denied Jesus those three times in the courtyard, as Jesus hung up in a pit in Caiaphas' house in one of the darkest moments ever to be known of a human, that a human being ever had to face, it doesn't leave much doubt about what has come between them. Those denials changed things. Those denials changed things between them. Those denials made it so that Simon, son of John, once known to Jesus as Peter, the one who left the boat to follow him, it made it so that he needed to be changed again. Most of us need to be changed again. Most of us know that the world that God created needs to be changed again. This is why this vision statement culminates with this phrase, God's transforming love. It indicates a desire for change, an admission that things need to be changed again. It's what we're headed toward, what we're hoping for. We envision a world, not just a church, but a world, where every heart experiences, not just thinks about and deliberates, but comes into spiritual contact with God's transforming love, a love that can change the world, a love that changes us and livens us to delight in this great gift of life once again. Our times tend to be courtyard times, and they have been for a long time, ever since Eden, probably. Our times are times when the rooster crows all night. And so, and this is the gospel, God invites us. God is inviting the whole world back to that charcoal fire. A fire where he has prepared breakfast and where he is saying, Let's start over. That's an invitation to each and every Simon, son of John, that sits in our sanctuary today. Let's start over. I wish I could tell you more about Harlan W. Fogel but I never met him. I never met him, but his words hang over my head. I can tell you that he was born in Michigan in 1909. I can't tell you how long he stayed here. I know that he died in Florida. Mr. Fogel lived for a time in Pontiac, with his wife, Maxine, his nine-year-old daughter, Jean, and his seven-year-old son, Richard. At least that was in 1940. I learned that from the US census taken. A young man in a hard time with not much going for him, but a steady hand. This is what Peter has going for him today, too. A steady hand. Not his own hand, of course. We know better than that, and he does too. But this is what makes the story bearable. I mean, if you really set yourself into it, we know that there is something about Jesus that will keep this post-resurrection encounter from becoming something ugly. You see, it might be that Peter deserves to be scorched but we know that Jesus is too steady for that, too divine for that, and so the story is bearable. And so it, it is that Peter doesn't get a punishment from Jesus for his denials. He gets a question. Do you love me? Do you love me more than thee? Peter can't answer that question any more than any of us can answer that question. We don't know how much the other people in our congregation love Jesus, and Peter doesn't know how much the other disciples love Jesus. He can't compare. But he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, and we sort of wince at that answer because number one, Peter doesn't answer the question Jesus isn't asking Peter if he loves him, but how much does he love him? And secondly, it sounds like Peter isn't quite convinced himself. It is for Peter the same way it is for any community of faith, any person alive, any individual that approaches Jesus at this starting point. We're not quite sure how much transformation we want. We know we want to be known as a person of faith, as a community of faith, but we're not quite sure that we want the internal change that's going to come with that. Do I have to be different if I say that I love you? I wish I could tell you more about Harlan W. Fogel. but I never met him. I never met him, but his words hang over my head. We do know that one day in the 1950s, Harlan Fogle received a call from a member of our church here at Kirk in the Hills. The member's name was Ivan Smith, And he was an artist, and he had sketched out an idea for a finishing touch on our newly built church. He was looking for someone with a steady hand, someone who could paint gold leaf letters and see his sketch through. Fogel said he could. And this is how it is for today's community of faith. This is what happens when we move from the boat to the shore and the shore to the fire. This is what happens when we embrace this starting over point. We're asked by the artist if we might see his sketch through. We're asked by the shepherd if we might become the flock. From the boat to the shore, from the shore to the fire, from the fire to the flock. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times the artist offers this sketch to Peter with the hope that we might see it through, that we might become this as a community. He offers this three times, obviously, for one, to mirror the three denials that Peter has around the fire, but also for the same reason. He offers this three times for the same reason that I have to invite my children to pick up the laundry off the floor three times, because they haven't done it yet. Peter hasn't gotten on with it. How many minutes have gone by between the first ask and the second? Just a few, was it an hour? How many days? Why hadn't Peter gotten up from the fire after the first time Jesus offered the sketch? Why haven't we gotten on with it? How will we know when we've gotten on with it? this living out of the artist's sketch. There are several wonderful stories about the great yet incredibly humble Paderewski, the Russian composer-pianist who died in 1941. One evening he was scheduled to perform at this great concert hall. And there in the dressed-up audience of men and women was a mother with a nine-year-old fidgety son. She'd brought him to the recital in hopes that he would fall in love with the piano, and so he was there against his will. She turned at one moment before the show to talk with her friends, and as she did, he scooted away from her without her notice, and he made his way all the way up onto the stage. And he sat down behind the piano on the stool and he looked over those great big white and black keys and he put his small fingers up on the keyboard and he began to play chopsticks and the roar of the crowd was hushed by hundreds of frowning faces looking towards the stage And the audience began to jeer at the nine-year-old boy and ask someone, please, would you get him off of the stage? And the mother, of course, was embarrassed. Backstage, though, the master overheard what was happening, and he quickly put together a plan, and he grabbed his coat, and he rushed out onto the stage, and then without one word of announcement, he stooped over the boy and put his arms around him on both sides, and began to improvise a counter melody to harmonize and enhance the tune. As the two of them kept playing together, Paderewski kept whispering in the boy's ear, keep going, don't quit, keep playing, don't quit, I am right here, don't quit, and that is the shape of the flock. That is how we will know we are getting on with it. When we are taking on that kind of posture, a posture of friendship, a posture that comes behind those that are wondering if they should stop, that are wondering if they have it, that are facing frowns and jeers, to whisper, don't quit. I'm right here. Keep going. You're part of something. You're part of a community. You're part of a flock. I wish I could tell you more about Harlan W. Fogle, but I never met him. I never met him, but his words hang over my head. In fact, his words hang over all of our heads. Under the careful watch of Kirk member Ivan Smith, Mr. Fogel painted in gold leaf the words that are found above the sanctuary vestibule doors. You maybe have never noticed them. The words themselves were identified by Pastor DeWint, when he was on one of his sightseeing trips in Shrewsbury, England. They were printed above an abbey's doorway there, too. But our words are Fogel's handiwork, and they read, as printed on your bulletin, Friend, there is a welcome in this church for thee. Come in and rest and think. And kneel and pray. What men have builded for God's glory, see. Give thanks, and so in peace go on thy way. Every time we walk in and out of here, those words hang over our head, and maybe you've never noticed them. They greet us and they send us out. But they do more than that. See, they offer a simple direction for anyone that might be trying to wrap their minds around Scripture and tradition, and even this vision statement. And that would be all of us, because they're in the first word, the first word to greet anyone that enters this space is a word that might be just right to define what we're called to do. It is a word that cuts to the heart and simplifies everything that Jesus is asking Simon, son of John, to do as he makes his way back to becoming Peter. It is a word that names what our world is starving for, and it is a word that will will give shape what we're called to be as a flock. And that word is friend. And so as we come to the end of this three-part series on the vision of the church, let Fogel's first word be our last. May we be friends. And that might be enough. That might be enough. Because friendships, infused by the power of the Holy Spirit, have been known to transform the world. Amen.